All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we are back. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. My name's Adario Strange. I'm here with Nick Song. This week, we are going to talk about the film, the fictionalized uh, version of the Edward Snowden story, Snowden by Oliver Stone. And we're also going to use that as an opportunity to talk about the WikiLeaks email dump, uh, where they found a bunch of hacked emails or they obtained a bunch of hacked emails from uh, the DNC, the Democrat uh, side of the political party here in the U.S., and actually not only posted the emails, but created an, a searchable database. And then shortly thereafter, they also posted a bunch of voicemails. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, we're going to talk about a few items in the news. And first up, we want to talk about this poll um, from Pew Research, from the Pew Research Center, uh, that most Americans are worried, concerned, uh, not into the idea of becoming transhuman. Oh, dang it. Poor Zoltan Istvan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a callback <laughs> to our Zoltan uh, Istvan uh, episode, uh, the guy running, who was running for president, who's a transhumanist. And so among the issues that they bring up that are of note or of concern is uh, gene editing. And the poll says that 68% of Americans are concerned about uh, gene editing, giving babies a much reduced uh, disease risk. Uh, another one was um, brain chip implants that would result in improved cognitive abilities. And apparently 69% of the, those polled do not or have some concerns, have worries about that. And then finally, uh, they polled people about synthetic blood that would allow people to have, well, just, you know, save lives and in some cases improve your physical ability. 4,000 to 5,000 people they polled around the U.S. And, you know, there's some pretty interesting findings. Um, I'm curious, what, so what was your reaction to this poll? I think ultimately that all this fear is a good thing. My thing about transhumanism is like, you know, you're just running before you can walk, per se. And like, we really haven't thought out maybe the ethics of all of this. So, you know, the way, you know, the way the pioneers work and the way that their brains work is that they're just going to rush head on into something without really thinking about perhaps the larger consequence. I find it somewhat encouraging that the that the mass majority of well, not, I wouldn't say the mass majority of people. I would say like a, a healthy majority of people have at least a somewhat healthy skepticism of, of this sort of thing because I don't think we've really thought about it as a society. So, you know, it gives me a little encouragement that people are just like, wait a minute, maybe we should think about this just a little bit. And one of the the, the findings that I thought was really interesting that uh, was in this very long and wordy uh, Pew Research thing was that 47% of Americans, they think that um, using, uh, in, in particular, the synthetic blood, that using it to improve physical uh, abilities was a quote-unquote appropriate use of technology if it would equal what that person's, like, the, the peak of their uh, ability would be, but that 28% thought like a much lower percentage, uh, 28% thought that it would be appropriate if we went beyond what humans are capable of. Well, yeah. And, and also part of the study also delved into what people think about classism with regard mm. to transhumanism. And there were some comments about 
uh, well, what if someone can't afford this particular enhancement and that, you know, this or that particular enhancement, whether it's a, a chip implant or some prosthetic, would that then result in kind of like this class, you know, divide where you have like, uh, what, what, what was the, um, Elysium? I think was yeah. Matt, Matt Damon, where people lived like literally in the clouds, uh, in the atmosphere, and they had access to all of this advanced medicine and, and advanced, uh, machines that could repair, even if, you know, your arm was blown off, it could, you know, repair your arm. But back down on earth, you know, the poor people were just left to their own devices. And, and I think that's like a valid concern. I mean, you even see that now, you know, when someone, I don't know, breaks their arm, you know, or, you know, has some major accident. If you don't have health insurance, when you, you know, often you'll see someone limping around and it's not a new injury. It's, it's something that happened to them many years ago and, and maybe they didn't get the right surgery or mm-hmm. they did get surgery and they didn't get the right rehab because they didn't have health, health insurance to pay, pay for rehab. You know, so these are things that are actually in play now. One area where I think you can really see it is in prosthetics because prosthetics are extremely expensive, at least now they're extremely expensive. And the people who have a lot of money, they can pay for some of the, the really nice ones that are, you know. Yeah, they look like that, um, the, the Luke Skywalker hand. That's yeah. like a real thing now. Yeah. And then, you know, you have people who are less fortunate, who don't have the same financial means, and they're stuck with prosthetics that may not fit them correctly. That makes it harder for them to walk, you know? I mean, what happens in in, in, a, in a world where... The Luke Skywalker hand, which is basically a, a prosthetic that has movable fingers, but it's basically a robotic hand uh, that responds to neural or muscular, neuromuscular impulses. What happens in a world where you have a bunch of people walking around with those and then you have some people walking around with hooks, you know, just yeah. like a hook? At least initially, there is going to be a lot of disparity in between who gets to have these augmented uh who gets to have these technological enhancements versus the people who don't. Yeah, I mean, um, the the other thing that I'm thinking about, aside from the class issues and and opportunity, is sports. You know, right now, PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs, is something that's frowned upon, whether you're talking about the Olympics or pro sports like football and basketball. But I, I predict that we're going to begin to see the acceptance of PEDs in sports because here's Hmm. the thing, keeping it pure, I think is actually a cool thing. I'm actually into keeping it pure, but what sport, what is sports really about? It's really about spectacle and, you know, shock, surprise, awe, and we're reaching, you know, some limits here. And I think, you know, with regard to world records and performance, and if someone now, I'm, again, I'm not arguing for PEDs, but, you know, let's just say, you know, in a world where they were okay, in a world where you're using PEDs, if that means that the guy cannot just jump over a six foot tall guy as he's running to the end zone, but he can jump over that guy while, I don't know, pirouetting in, in the air and, you know, you know, kind of freeze framing for the camera as he smiles and then lands on, on a pinky or something. I mean, people kind of want to see that. Sports fans want to see that. So I suspect whether it's fighting, you know, MMA, football, basketball, uh, you know, I mean, Michael Jordan could dunk from the foul line. What if someone could dunk from the three point line? That sounds insane right now. But if we ever saw that, 
And then we later found out, and I think right now the NBA doesn't have rigorous testing. I could be wrong, but mm-hmm. I believe they don't have rigorous PD, uh, PED testing. If at some point some guy dunks from the three-point line and then we later find out that he's on PEDs, I think there's there'll be a healthy contingent of fans out there who will say – Okay, not cool, but I kind of want to see that again. <laughs> you know, like, can we please see him dunk from the three point line again? Um, yeah. So I, I, I suspect that sports will be one of the, the frontiers where you'll see it gradually accepted. And, and by the way, the, the entire Russian Olympic team was. Yeah, uh, I heard about that. Yeah, there was supposedly some danger that that entire team in all sports from Russia might be banned from this upcoming Rio Olympics for possible PED issues. And now I don't know what. Oh, and it was, and it was possibly state sponsored. Right. Yeah, state sponsored. And I don't know what happened, but for some reason they're now allowed to compete. Well, you know, I haven't read into this, but that's kind of weird. Like, what happens if they win a ton of medals? Well, like, to that point, either everyone dopes in a kind of a regulated way, you know, regulated doping, or no one does. It's You can't just have some doping and some not doping. Who's to say that antidepressants aren't PEDs? I mean, if someone is from their natural biochemistry naturally depressed or, you know, not engaged or let's say they have ADD, you know, their Mm -hmm. attention is divided and they can't focus and a pill, you know, medication allows them to focus, not be depressed. And they walk into the same office and compete with someone who maybe isn't clinically depressed, maybe isn't clinically diagnosed as having uh, less focus, but is nevertheless not at the top of their game, but just not according to doctors clinically in any way debilitated. And they're now matched up against someone who's medicated, who's not just uh, medicated and, and focused, but hyper-focused, hyper-focused, hyper-aware. Their synapses are popping. They're thinking quickly. Isn't that a form of PEDs in the white-collar world already? That is a minefield. <laughs> that is a minefield. Well, you know, to I guess just straight off the bat, you can make the argument that they weren't performing at what was a normal level and those drugs would help them perform at the normal level. And if they were to take it to the point where they're beyond the normal level, like a normal person using, let's say, Adderall or Ritalin to focus super, like super focus, like, you know, if someone has ADHD and they take Adderall or Ritalin, that just helps them get to the, I guess what they would say is the basic, the basic, the baseline of what normal cognitive function should be. And then let's say you're someone who's already at the baseline who's taking Adderall or Ritalin so that they can study harder. I mean, this is already happening. Yeah, well, well, see, that's the question. What is normal? I think that's the key question. Let's take us 100 years ago and I break my leg and I don't have, you know, some metal implant. Uh, I don't have, you know, the same advanced surgery that we have now. And then post-surgery, I don't have whatever drugs, whatever, like, you know, very uh, powerful drugs that not only, you know, mute the pain, but allow me to work on a daily basis. And then whatever, nine months to a year after that surgery, I'm running in a marathon. That may be slow, a slower, more gradual version, but that's not natural compared to a hundred years ago. That's not the norm. The norm, if we take ourselves back to a hundred years ago is, well, you got a broken leg and uh, this is a pretty bad break and it'll heal. But now you've got a limp for the rest of your life and you probably won't run for at least two years. 
and you'll be in pain during that whole time. I mean, that was the norm, you know, not yeah. a huge amount of time ago. So I, I think the key, my, my point is, I think the key question is what is normal? And I think as with everything in, in, in our society, what is normal will shift. I tend to agree with you on that. And, you know, as we evolve, we change. So, so I just think it's a very much about kind of codifying a set of rules that would help us use technology in a way that makes sense for us now. And maybe that's why all these people are freaked out about transhumanism, because it's just so beyond what we perceive to be normal now. So moving on, we want to talk about another news story that came out uh, involving manned space travel. Specifically, uh, a study came out that uh, claims cosmic rays increased heart risks for the Apollo astronauts. And those are the astronauts that made the moon landings uh, many years ago. So I'm going to read from the Reuters article that surfaced this study. And uh, Reuters says, Apollo astronauts who ventured to the moon are at five times greater risk of dying from heart disease than shuttle astronauts. And the study cites the danger being cosmic radiation beyond the Earth's magnetic field. And the study was conducted by, conducted by Florida State University and NASA. And that study found that three Apollo astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, uh, in total representing 43% of astronauts studied, died from cardiovascular disease, a finding with implications for future human travel beyond Earth. So basically, we're Earthbound. We have to send all the robots because if we leave <laughs> the Earth, we'll die from heart attacks unless we have some transhumanist help. You know what this reminds me of? We talked about it a number of episodes ago, but that movie that's coming out, uh, The Space Between Us, about the kid who gets born on Mars. because His heart cannot handle Earth's gravity. Yeah, basically. (laughs) So maybe, like, it's a different reason that they cite, but maybe they were onto something about the heart not being able to handle space. Which is kind of poetic in a in a weird way, but uh, it, it also got me thinking about you know um, what's it those those two uh, Mark and Scott Kelly the identical twin astronauts and you know that would just I would be really interested in seeing what what the results of the research that NASA is currently doing on those two because uh, there was the one who was in space. And I don't remember which one is which, but um, one was in space and then one was on Earth and just studying how their bodies change. And, you know, now that they know that this is a factor, that that would be interesting to see. I'd be willing to bet that that was a factor in his selection for that. I think he spent like a year, right? Mm -hmm. A year in space. That's kind of like it's not the moon, but it's kind Mm -hmm. of similar, you know, just kind of like showing the extended effects of extended uh, time in space. So, yes, I I would bet that that's part of the reason he was selected for that mission because they have like something to – they have a a clone basically to compare, (laughs) you know, to see what happens. Um, But I mean – Chances of twins becoming astronauts. Right. So, but I mean – so, but that article really asks a big question like what does this mean for the future – of human travel beyond Earth. I mean... Uh, I mean, we're probably going to have to build space stations that can block uh, that kind of radiation or just figure out a way because, you know, we have... The Earth's magnetic field apparently is one of the reasons that we can sustain life on Earth. Another thing that keeps us Earthbound, as you say. But I also think that it's very possible that we'll evolve to a point where 
our like tolerance of radiation will go up. Really? Hopefully. Wait, wait, wait. Are you? This is like Fantastic Four. Four talk. Like, what, what do you like? Naturally evolve to just like ward off cosmic rays. Well, like, let's say we send people into space mm-hmm. and we have some man-made help to kind of shield like radiation blocking metal that we build. I don't know some sort of space habitat. It's only going to get better the more money that we put into it. Um, oh, so you mean evolve technologically, not physiologically? No, but eventually, like, you'll have Earth humans and you'll have space humans, and we may diverge at that point. I think at some point we will evolve differently, like planet dwellers versus space people. I see know? what you're saying. So you're saying people who maybe are born and raised uh, in space or on the moon or maybe a Mars settlement uh, would be better physiologically equipped just uh, – mm-hmm just through, I guess, breeding over whatever, the course of decades. And then maybe if those people came to Earth, they might actually be at some sort of disadvantage being on Earth. Yeah, So that was the... Okay, so you really meant that literal... When you brought that movie up, you meant that as, like, a very direct comparison. Yeah, like, I I think that, you know, the reason, like, the movie, The the Space Between Us, they're citing Earth's gravity. His heart cannot take it! Sorry. Exactly. (laughs) His heart, it cannot take it. I love that line. What was that? I think that was Gary Oldman who said that, Yeah, it was Gary Oldman. He's like, he can't handle Earth, this heart. It's just, he's got a ticker. But, you know, I, I think that's actually a thing that we're not necessarily aware of because we're still very early stages but this is going to have a big implication on elon musk and spacex Mm. and uh bezos bezos on uh blue origin when they're trying to send people to mars within the next 10 years like you know this is going to be a thing this is something that they have to calculate one of the many multivariable factors that they have to look into what uh, space travel will mean on the human body and you know like, we also have to consider the fact that, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into heart disease. Is it because the astronauts who are dying or of heart disease have a family predisposition to it? We don't know. But, like, it, it is telling that some of these Apollo astronauts, you know, got it at a higher rate. Or, or you could go the transhuman route and give them artificial hearts. Like, just like, okay, I know that I'm going to be engaged in space travel, so I'm going in for my artificial heart uh, next Thursday. Seriously. Like, like I'm, I'm not joking. Like, you know, that maybe that becomes a prerequisite for people who plan to spend extended time in space. Like, you know, if, you know, artificial hearts get to just such a reliable point where, you know, it's, it's just that easy. Mm. So, so basically, it, w- it might put us in a situation where space could eventually drive transhumanism. Where humans, we evolve. We, t- you know, we evolve to meet each challenge. So, I can see that being a scenario. We don't all people who want to go into space. They're adventurers. They're people who take risks. And I think if one of those risks were okay, well, part of space travel is you have to have an artificial heart, and your left leg has to be a robotic leg. Are you willing to give up those? parts of your meat self a lot of people i think would just you know readily readily sign up sure you know yeah i'm gonna spend the next 30 years in space and, and this would lets me do it without you know serious you know health effects and and doesn't impact my longevity sure let's do it i don't know if i would do it but i would definitely think about it if it meant coming close to kirk-like explorations at least within our own solar system i might sign up 
So speaking of explorations into unknown spaces, we want to talk about our main topic this week, which is the new film by director Oliver Stone called Snowden. You want it to be special forces? Yes, sir. Why do you want to join the CIA? I'd like to help my country make a difference in the world. Deputy director of the NSA offered me a new position. Can you tell me anything about it? (laughs) You know I can't. Find the terrorist in the internet haystack. Think of it as a Google search, except instead of searching only what people make public, we're also looking at everything they don't. Emails, chats, SMS, whatever. Yeah, but which people? The whole kingdom, Snow White. The NSA is really tracking every cell phone in the world. Most Americans don't want freedom. They want security. Except people, they don't even know they've made that bargain. Are they watching us? There's something going on inside the government that's really wrong, and I can't ignore it. I just want to get this data to the world. And so that's just a brief clip of Snowden. And, well, the first thing that jumps out to me about this is Oliver Stone's back. Director Oliver Stone is back. He is known for being kind of like a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Um, <laughs> That's you know. putting it nicely. Yeah, yeah. Putting, yeah, putting it nicely. So it's kind of, it's no surprise that Stone, you know, leaped at the chance to do this. Um, what, what was your first, your reaction to this? Wow, Joseph Gordon-Levitt looks weird and sounds weird as Snowden. He's doing his best Snowden impression. And then also, I just don't know how... What kind? Because this is obviously not a documentary. Yeah, I should actually. I forgot to mention. So, starring as Edward Snowden is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Zachary also starring as Zachary Quinto. You know him from Star Trek. Uh, Nicholas Cage is in the film. Timothy Oliphant is in the film, and apparently Glenn Glenn Greenwald, who's actually the journalist who broke the story originally for the Guardian. Uh, he apparently appears in the film as well. Uh, actually, Zachary Quinto does play Green- Glenn Greenwald in the film, which is interesting. So I guess Greenwald may- maybe makes some sort of appearance as like a normal journalist. I don't know. But he is he's listed on the cast for some reason. That is interesting. But like this is a fictionalized version, or at right. least somewhat fictionalized version of Edward Snowden's ordeal or, you know, his journey, whatever you want to call it. Um, So, you know, it struck me as weird that we were getting this biopic so soon after the events happened, one. And then two, we have a lot of Edward Snowden documentaries out there already. This one seems to be, this this fictionalized version seems to be pulled Mm -hmm. from the Citizen Four documentary. Did you get a chance to see that? I didn't get a chance to see the Citizen Four documentary, but here's another interesting bit about this movie, is that they have Melissa Leo, in the film and she plays um her what's her name uh the she plays laura poitras i don't know if i'm pronouncing her last name correctly but she's the documentary maker who made citizen four so she is a character in this film yeah because she interviews him she well she does part of the interview with him in the hotel room in hong kong Mm -hmm. and i saw citizen four i actually loved the film i thought it was very well done it's a documentary and when i saw the this uh, Snowden, they should I think they should have given it a different name because saying Snowden, the film, you know, with Edward Snowden's name, it's kind of confusing. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, it's Oliver Snow, Stone. So everything has to be, you know, Kennedy <laughs> Snowden, you know, uh, whatever, you know. Uh, so Oliver Stone, known in Hollywood circles as a bit of a conspiracy theorist. However, in this case, the conspiracy dun, 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 was all true. 
Snowden uh, revealed a great deal about the intelligence community, particularly the NSA and the CIA in his data dump. And for those who don't know, if you don't know this story by now, I don't know what rock you're living under, <laughs> but he was working as a contractor for the NSA. And right before he did his whistleblowing move, he um, went to Hong Kong. And then I think he was, uh, that's where he did the interview with the Guardian people. And then he also shot some scenes for Laura Poitras. And uh, then he made his escape to Russia. And there was some rumor that he was going to go, I think it was, was it Venezuela? Do you remember? I think it was like some some, South American country. It was a South American country. It might've been Venezuela, but, um, and the U.S. government actually tried to catch him in transit. And apparently uh, they got, you know, head faked and he wasn't on the plane or whatever. And he's still in Russia right now. And somehow I I found this interesting. His, uh, his girlfriend has Uh joined him in Russia. And I found that interesting because I just thought, you know, of all the, you know, the the dramatic films we've seen of, about, you know, the U.S. intelligence community, you would think that she would have somehow been stopped, you know, but she's joined him out there and he appears to be uh, doing OK. He's not in the same position as Julian Assange, who, uh, uh, you know, one of the WikiLeaks. The, yeah, he's trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy still. Yeah, due to some, he doesn't want to stand trial. I think it's in Switzerland or Sweden for, uh, he's, he's been accused of rape and he's, I think he's worried that he's not, uh, the contention I believe is that he's not so much worried about that case, but that once he gets in their hands that he will be extradited to the U.S. And so the Ecuadorian embassy has allowed him to have asylum. So he's been living in this London embassy for, I think, three years, might be a little bit more. And so he's in a worse state than Edward Snowden. But Edward Snowden is definitely the bigger target. And so this film, based just on the little bit of trailer that I saw, it looks pretty much like a direct adaptation of the documentary. With some with some fictional flair thrown in, that Rubik's Cube scene when he's going through the TSA thing, that that seems... Now, are we sure that's fictional? I feel like when I saw that scene, it, it jogged something in my memory where I feel like that like he did use some sort of Rubik's Cube thing. He, yeah, he, he, he was seen with a Rubik's Cube a lot. I just mean like the whole thing of being like, I'm going to toss you this, this Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Meanwhile, my face is going to be terrified for 0.5 seconds. Well, he's jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's got to do cool, yeah. clever things. I, I yeah, thought he I did know. a great job on the voice, by the way. Yeah, it was. Edward Stoneman has a very distinctive way of talking. It's very deep and kind of like he's got a really interesting like syncopation with his voice. But um, I have to admit, while I was watching, I saw that trailer in the theater right before Star Trek Beyond. And there was some laughing going on in the theater. I don't know if it was. Oh, really? It was, yeah. Yeah, there was some what, laughing At what point did they laugh? Um, just when he, like, I think the first time he opens his mouth and talks as Snowden, he's just <laughs> oh, like, yeah. you know, he's like, the government is doing something and yeah. it's bad. And, <laughs> and I heard multiple people in my theater laughing, just going like, are you, are you okay. freaking kidding me? I thought he did a so. good job on the voice, but I will admit I kind of smirked a little bit because it, it was an interesting choice. Let's just say. Well, so the film the film's coming out in September of this year, September 16th. Um, so you haven't seen the, the documentary that this seems to be drawn from. But just in general, you thought it was decent. I thought I, th- I think it looks well made. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever if I if I see the movie, I don't know if I can if I'll get past Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Edward Snowden impression. Yeah, I, I just don't know if that'll take me out of it. And also, 
uh, the scene with Nick Cage in the trailer. I was just pretty much like, Nick Cage is Nick Cage. So it was a little <laughs> jarring, so the, to speak. It's the overacting bonanza. Yeah, a little bit. And I don't know if that'll hurt the film or not. But, you know, another really interesting thing when I was when I was looking this film up is that it's based on two books. One fiction, one nonfiction. So one of the books is called The Snowden Files by Luke Harding. And then the other one is called The Time of the Octopus, which was written by <laughs> a Russian. It was written by a Russian named Anatoly Kucherena. And he was actually Snowden's lawyer. So Snowden's lawyer wrote a book uh, called The Time of the Octopus about a fictional American whistleblower named Joshua Cold, who has been threatened by his government and is waiting for a decision on his request for a Russian asylum. Now, is this guy just being an opportunist? Because, I mean, if he's a Russian attorney... You know, Edward Snowden's still in Russia and his beef isn't with Russia. It's with the U.S. So is this guy just an opportunist? Like, I mean, he he must be. And, and you know, Oliver Stone actually paid a hefty chunk of money for the rights to this The Time of the Octopus book. Hmm. So I'm guessing he's pulling. I'm guessing, you know, it, it's a pretty thin veneer. Like, this is obviously based on his experience being the lawyer of Edward Snowden. Hmm. Um, so I'm guessing he's pulling bits from that fictional bit to spice up this this version of Snowden's journey because you know it's not going to be a documentary by any means. It, there's gonna well, we be- already have that. Yeah, the yeah. Citizen Four was a pretty strong. Um, I encourage you and everyone listening to see Citizen Four before this uh, Snowden film comes out <laughs> because Citizen Four is it's very dramatic, but it is a documentary and. I'll never forget one of my favorite parts in the documentary, and this may come up in the film, and so I just want to warn you guys out there, if you see this in the film and you think they're being over the top, no, this this happened in real life. So there's a point in the documentary where he's in his Hong Kong hotel room and he's invited uh, Laura and Greenwald and I think one other uh, editor from The Guardian to his uh, hotel room, and he's having conversations with them on and off. And he takes all these counter surveillance measures to make sure they're not being recorded or surveilled. And at one point, I am not making this up. You can go watch the documentary for yourself. <laughs> at one point, he's in the room with them. He He's on the bed with his laptop with the covers over his head to block out. I don't know how. I mean, it scared the hell out of me because this guy worked for the NSA. He's not a crackpot. He worked for them. So it just made me think, well, okay, the guy's on his bed with his laptop, but he's putting a cover over his head before typing. What, like, what, like, and he wasn't sitting next to a window. So it just made me think, you know, if I had, like, an interview with Snowden, that would be my first question I would ask him. And he's done a a ton of interviews, uh, you know, for people who don't know. Uh, he, he often shows up at like tech conferences, you know, via remote, uh, stream and he'll do like an interview. And if I interviewed him, that would be my first question. Like, what exactly were you preventing <laughs> when you were on the bed with the cover over your head? Like, I, like, how could they see, like, what is it that they'd be able to see there? So anyway, so if you see that in the film, that's a real thing that happened in documentary. So anyway, so this, all this trailer dropped at a very interesting time because this, trailer came out right as a new hacking scandal uh, arose in the real world. And that's uh, WikiLeaks releasing 20,000 emails 
that were hacked from the Democratic National Committee. And it was later, we don't have conclusive proof, but it was later uh, determined that it was Russian hackers who hacked the DNC to get emails from the Democratic uh, side of the election body uh, here in the U.S. And uh, to date, I believe the most, um, whatever, the most venomous, the most damaging email came out uh, about um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, who was uh, kind of like acting as a referee of sorts between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And some of the emails um, that were revealed indicate uh, that she, you know, pretty much was leaning heavily in favor of Hillary Clinton, uh, which basically backed up a lot of uh, Bernie Sanders claim that uh, the kind of the, the whole thing on the Democratic side of the party wasn't really going that fairly. But uh, the WikiLeaks actually posted like a database, like a searchable database. You can go to their website and just enter terms, names, and easily search through all these like 20,000 emails. And then not long after that, maybe, I don't know, four or five days, maybe a week after that, uh, another uh, dump of uh, voicemails were released from uh, WikiLeaks. So this is kind of like, you know, this is... Ever since Snowden came out with his initial data dump uh, about, you know, the NSA, the CIA, and, you know, their practices and how they surveil not only the world, but U.S. citizens, there's been this kind of rolling release of leaked documents, hacked documents. Uh, and so this, it was just very interesting that this trailer dropped right as this WikiLeaks DNC email thing kind of popped up. Yeah, and you know, it's it's kind of been strange to watch everything unfold because I you know, first of all, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks are totally different from Snowden even though they get lumped in together all the time just because of the nature of what they did. Uh but also just seeing the impact that this has had on the election has been kind of crazy because Debbie Wasserman Schultz is, you know, she took the fall. For for all of this, the the perceived or well, not perceived anymore. Yeah, that's um, not perceived. <laughs> not perceived anymore. Um, but uh, you know, the the DNC's shepherding towards Clinton, um, and then also just Donald Trump, you know, inviting Russian hackers to find the rest of Hillary Clinton's oh, email. Right, we forgot. To, okay, so so right after this happened, uh, Donald Trump, um, who's on the GOP side of the election. He uh, held a press conference where, well, okay, so this is interesting. So when I first heard about this, I heard about it the way you just put it out there. I have a different view because I actually watched the entire press conference. What he actually said originally was, I don't know. This is Trump talking. I don't know if it's Mm -hmm. Chinese hackers. I don't know if it's Russian hackers. I don't know who, but, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then he, you know, kept going on about the emails. And then later during the press conference, he makes this, uh, I guess, I, you know, flippant, you know, comment, you know, hey, you know, if you if you guys have the emails, I, th- I guess he said if, if you Russian guys have the emails, the media would love it. I think what he was trying to do, if you watch the entire press conference, I think that was supposed to be a slap against the media. And this is kind of like Trump's kind of weak point and strong point. Sometimes he hits a home run by, you know, making some offhand comment. And then sometimes he means to make one comment and it's interpreted like in a way he didn't expect. And I think he was trying to make a slap against the media, basically saying, you know, look, this has nothing to do with me. I didn't hack her. You know, I didn't say anything about her. 
these emails came out and you guys are all over it. And I think that's what the point he was trying to make. But it basically turned into, <laughs> hey, Russian government, hack our government. Uh, at least that's the way it was interpreted. But actually, if you watch the entire press conference and it's on YouTube, he actually mentions China as a possible uh, mm. as being as possibly being behind the hack as well. Now, reports unrelated to Trump, uh, again, as I just earlier said, like it, they indicate that this is a, a Russian hacker thing, you know, that the hack was executed by the Russians. But in his press conference, he also implicated China. And, you know, he did come out today being like, of course I was joking. I was just being sarcastic. I wasn't actually wanting them to hack us. And, you know, okay, yeah. Donald, yeah. we believe you. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's like we've come to expect these hacking dumps every once in a while. And it's honestly kind of insane that this can have such a big impact on something as big as the the like we like let, let's face the facts. You and I and probably anyone else out there, we know that there are people pulling the strings behind whatever is happening on a big, on a big scale. Whoa, whoa, what are, you, what are you talking about? Oliver Stone? <laughs> what, what do you mean? What are you talk- <laughs> I, like, I don't, I, I honestly don't know what you mean. What are you saying? Like, you know, people in power, they have these secret conversations that they have with each other. Like they've been doing this for like centuries. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, like, you know, after these people die, these will be some historian will go through like it used to be that these people would die. And some historians, once these files were all declassified, would just like pick through letters and be like, oh, this is what they were writing to each other in their secret correspondences. But now that everything is online, we don't have to wait until anyone is dead anymore to kind of get at these documents and kind of try and piece together for ourselves what's going on. So it's very 1984, except in Big Brother is WikiLeaks and not necessarily gov- the government, but it's also the government. But they're watching each other and they keep airing each other's crap for us to find on the Internet. It's, it's a bizarre time. Well, yeah. It, well, it's interesting because it's like I think some people view WikiLeaks as kind of this, um, you know, they're watching the watchers, as you kind of just indicated, but one comment that I saw uh, with regard to the voicemails, it, you know, one of the voicemails apparently has um, someone's little kid leaving a voicemail for their father. You know, I love you, daddy, something like that. And, you know, there was a comment I, you know, I saw a few places saying, you know, this is not, you know, you know, referring to WikiLeaks. This is not good work. You know, you're not doing, mm-hmm. you know, whistleblower work here. You know, this is someone's child, like that kind of thing. Um, but you know, what, what it really, for me, and I'm not trying to kind of reduce this to Hollywood stuff, but just it, it the first thing I thought about with all this was, um, Sony, the Sony hack, um, mm. when Amy Pascal was CEO of Sony Entertainment. And, you know, most people who knew of Amy Pascal, I think, considered her a fairly liberal person. I didn't think anyone expected her when they, you know, when you see the emails, we found out that. She didn't think, you know, people of color were really great leads for movies and didn't really play internationally well. And, I, you know, and a lot of people were disappointed by that and that, you know, that plus just the general way in which she handled the hacking situation led to her stepping down. But, you know, what this does is it just with this recent hack, the reason it reminded me of that is because it's showing us a... You know, things like you said, like, you know, before we'd have to wait 50 years or so 
you know, before, oh, and now the archives have been released or, oh, the, the grandchild of this person has released this person's notes. But now we're getting this stuff in real time and it's, it's telling us who we really are. With the DNC, Bernie Sanders really made a big case that, you know, particularly Debbie Wasserman mm-hmm. Schultz was being unfair. And I'm sure a lot of people doubted him. And he was right on the money. And the same thing with Hollywood. I think a lot of people, you know, you know, when they're having beers or coffee in their private time, if you ask them what they really think about Hollywood, you know, they know that Hollywood isn't working as hard as it could be, you know, to be as diverse as this country is in terms of the product they put out. But when you see people like Amy Pascal, who is uh, head of C- uh, the CEO of Sony Entertainment, and she's behind some of these decisions, you know, with regard to casting and who can and can't, you know, lead a film, whether it's a person of color or a woman or whatever. I mean, it's disappointing, but it tells you yeah. who we really are. Very, 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 very much so. And it's strange because we have this weird access to these very distant and powerful people that we didn't have before. It's like uh, a nerd going and stealing the popular kid's diary and airing it for the entire world to see. Um, but also, you know, you, br- you brought it up a bit earlier, the ethics behind it, what should get leaked and what doesn't get leaked. You know, who's in charge of that? These hackers. They're the ones who get to upload everything. And I believe there was a case in Turkey where they dumped all these emails and they basically, you know, dumped the emails of a bunch of women in, in the country that put a lot of them at risk, you know, just ordinary average citizens, like, you know, the, between doxing or all these things where, you know, people like you or I get caught in the crossfire versus people who are, public figureheads or just public figures in general. Like, you know, where, where, where do we draw the line with all of that? Yeah, I think it's also kind of slowly changing behavior because if you take something like Snapchat, you know, the assumption is that, well, the assumption by most people who aren't that tech savvy is that when you send a message, that message disappears and you don't have to worry about that message maybe coming back to bite you. Now, there is a function in the app that lets you know when someone takes a screenshot but maybe, you know, what if you're not paying attention? What if you're not, you know, keeping tabs on that particular feature? So okay. there's that. I kind of I, I kind of hate Snapchat, I'll be honest. So, <laughs> I, so, so I don't really know much about Snapchat, but I do know that if you think that you're writing a message on an app and once that message disappears, it will never be seen again by anyone, I think you're being naive. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, there's just a very simple, quote unquote, hack to do uh, on Snapchat where you can save a photo that someone sends you and the person on the other end will never know. And it's simply to turn on airplane mode when you open the photo and then save it. And then it causes a glitch. I don't know if they fixed that. Yeah. Vic song delivering the uh, Snapchat mm-hmm. hacks. Okay. Had, had to be, had to be shady. <laughs> well, but, by Vic song, but <laughs> well, yeah. And, and it, but so what I mean by it's changing behavior is that at this point, knowing how transparent, I mean, I've always known email, like you don't, I always held to the rule, you don't write something in email you wouldn't say to someone's face or say mm-hmm. in public on camera to the world. You should just assume that at some point your emails will fall out of your control and be seen, you know? 
even when you use encryption. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's exactly what the Amy Pascal email leaks. That's what that taught us because, you know, who knows whether what she said was in context to the person that she was talking to. Like maybe they have a relationship where, you know, like I didn't read any of those emails, but, um, Oh, I did. If (laughs) there was some colorful stuff in there, I mean, yeah. But, you know, sometimes when you're with friends, you'll say some things off right. the cuff. Right. And between the two of you, you know what the sentiment is behind that. And you know that type of person. And, you know, it's okay between the two of you. And it's not something you would say, you know, to the general public or whatever. Right. Well, you know, if your emails are hacked and they're posted online for the entire world to see, people don't know that. People right. don't know the context of any email or what the relationship is. And you saying that just sounds like an excuse Right. And the problem, the public eye. Well, yeah. And the problem now, though, is that everyone demands a text, meaning I've been in a few situations in the last few years where myself and either a colleague or friend were engaged in a a topic about a sensitive uh, conversation about a sensitive topic. And it got to a point where I said, hey, let's switch to the phone. You know, I don't really some of this stuff I don't want to write. And it's not a thing of like the people are necessarily trying to catch you and get you to write down some ugly things or some things that might, you know, entrap you later. They just for a lot of people, phone calls have become too inconvenient, too much of a you know, mm-hmm. it's just too much of a heavy lift. It's not a heavy. I mean, come on, a mobile phone is, is a, it's not a heavy <laughs> lift. But for some reason, culturally, at least culturally, at least here in the States, Picking up the phone and talking to people is like really like falling out of favor. Yeah, no, I mean, I have to admit that if I have to call an office to make an appointment, I am seriously put out. I'm just like, what, I can't do it online now? Or I can't just, you know, do one of those things where I text a certain time and like it comes back. There's, there isn't an app for that. I mean, I love ZocDoc because I don't have to call anywhere. And it's not just with appointments, as you said, it's talking with friends. Like I can count maybe on one hand, the number of phone conversations I've had in the last three weeks between me and my friend. And it's just basically something like, where are you? Oh, I don't want to type it out. Like I'll just call you and direct you that way. Cause sometimes right. it is just easier to say something, Right. but by and large, all my communications are written. The, the key here though, is when you pick up a, a telephone Unless the person is, you know, being very, you know, weird and somehow set up a recording device on their phone, basically when you call someone, you, you, you know, you feel good that that, you know, what you're about to say is not being recorded. It's not being saved, you know, for posterity. <laughs> and so, but wait, that's not the case when you text someone. And so that's what I, that's what I was really getting at is just that we're in a situation, at least here in the States, where everything is being texted, everything's being emailed. And so I believe with all these data dumps and it's become common now for, you know, emails and texts to come out, it's changing the way we communicate. It's changing our behavior. I think it's changing. It's changing how we relate to each other. It is because, uh, you know, you just reminded me of another recent data dump. It wasn't really a data dump, but it was also broken through Snapchat and uh, it, it's because you said that do we it. don't expect people to record our phone calls. Do it, unless do you're it. Kim Kardashian <laughs> recording Taylor Swift talking to Kanye West about a certain lyric in a song of his. 
So, that's actually, you know, that's fascinating. That's a huge loophole I hadn't even thought about. Okay, in brief, for those who don't know, Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, beef. They have beef with Taylor Swift. Kanye West came out with a song that made some kind of colorful comments about Taylor Swift. And uh, there was some backlash from from Taylor Swift fans. Taylor Swift then went on uh, uh, an award show and indicated that she had no knowledge that this was going to happen. Uh, then later, Kanye said, no, that's not true. I actually called her and asked for permission. A lot of people didn't seem to believe that he did that. You know, what rapper calls someone and asks for permission to make colorful comments about them? And then months later, Kim Kardashian, Kim, Kanye West's wife, uh, she actually Snapchatted uh, video recordings of when they had the of when Kanye actually did, in fact, have the conversation with Taylor Swift and um, and hijinks ensue. And then and, 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 and there was, you know, a bunch of back and forth. And now everybody thinks uh, Taylor Swift is a big liar and a big phony. And of course she is. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, that was just a fascinating loophole because it was Snapchat used to record a phone call. And that's I, that's I'm glad you brought that up. I hadn't even thought about it. You're, you're right. I mean, you could let's say that wasn't a studio because it was Rick Rubin, uh, Kanye mm -hmm. West, and I'm guessing someone else there, maybe even Kim. But you could basically just, you know, turn the camera on yourself in selfie mode and record yourself talking to the person on speaker. You know, at what point can we assume any privacy at this point? Well, I think the whole thing is that you can't. You you just can't assume privacy unless you are with unless you're in like a Wi-Fi dead zone. Uh, you have no computer on you. You're in a yurt or a hut or something like that. But but, no but, but the inside of the yurt must have tin foil on the yes. on the yurt walls. Yeah, there's yes. tin foil, or, or you're in like a lead bunker underground with no Wi-Fi, no nothing, and you've only got like one other person, and you have to talk to them. And so basically, and this is all Snowden's fault. We're all paranoid as fuck because Snowden started this <laughs> ball rolling. And uh, the, the the irony of all of this is that Snowden uh, took asylum in the most surveilled, you know, lack of <laughs> privacy governments on the planet. You can guarantee his bowel movements are being recorded and cataloged on a daily basis. They probably know how many times, you know, he hooks up with his girlfriend in his own house right now. And so it, it's a terrible irony because... I believe him that he was trying to be a whistleblower and that he was trying to do the right thing. And he thought, you know, that there was some, you know, that they maybe, you know, certain agencies were overstepping their bounds. I believe he was trying mm -hmm. to do the right thing. But the irony is he's now essentially in a far worse place, at least in, in regard to his own privacy. Yeah. And is it is it worth it? Considering that the mass general public confuses him with Julian Assange and doesn't understand like the nuances between their different or like their differences in how they approach, um, you know, hacking and information dumps. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think history is going to look. I mean, my guess now. I mean, anything can happen. You know, in the next few years or whatever. But as it stands now, I my guess is that history is going to look on him far more favorably than Julian Assange. Julian oh, Assange. Yeah. Julian Assange has like this sex case, whether he's right or wrong in that case, 
nevertheless, that's part of the issue with him. Uh, there are all these stories out there about Assange with regard to how he treats people he works with. Uh, there appears to be kind of like some weird, strained relationship between him and WikiLeaks. I, I don't know the details of that, but, you know, that seems to go back and forth. Uh, and then this whole, you know, being holed up in uh, an embassy, you know, for three years. I, you know, so there's a lot of stuff going on with him, whereas, you know, Snowden, I don't know, I, I suspect uh, you know, history will treat him well, but yeah, he wants to come back to the U S he wants, he, he has expressed a desire to come back. Um, I think what he's looking for is some sort of guarantee that he won't spend life in prison or something like that. There are no guarantees, you know, if well, you're going to come luck. back, you know, good luck with this election. I don't <laughs> think he's going to get a president either, which way who's sympathetic towards him. So you Certainly think not, certainly not Clinton and definitely not El Trumpador. So, so you think if he was going to come back, he should have come back under Obama. Uh, he should have, possibly negotiated something under Obama. Well, they weren't trying to go negotiate. I, I think he's yeah. made repeated overtures to try to negotiate a return and they weren't hearing it. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, um, right now he, you know, he's, I think his latest project, um, is this, uh, device. Uh, so he's working with this Chinese dev guy. I don't know exactly what his, his deal is, but he's working with this, uh, Chinese computer dude, um, who and they're working on like a type of phone case that can make sure uh, something a tool for journalists I guess who may be in uh, perilous situations to make sure that no one can control their phone. Well, so specifically the off, iPhone, right? I think it's the iPhone. I, I'm not 100 percent sure about the details. It's something so that when your phone is off, you know it's off. So let's see. Uh, so, yeah, so the device is a prototype. Well, it's, it's not even a prototype. It's a design for a prototype that they want to build. You know, if I had to guess, I think this might be his way of on some level making peace with the fact that maybe he's not coming, not going to get to come back to the U.S. anytime soon. And so he needs to, you know, maybe harness his brain power to make some money, make some real money, you know. <laughs> Uh, cause you know, it does, yeah, like you said, you know, probably his best bet was to come back under this administration. You know, uh, Hillary's known as a hawk, you know, and, uh, Trump doesn't seem to be, uh, a softy on that kind of stuff as well. So it, it looks like he may be there for the long haul. So, so, you know, I, you know, this whole prototype design thing, you know, that's all well and good, frankly. I think he's already served his role in history. You know, unless he gets to come back at some point, I think he's done his work. And this film is, I guess, a, a better, more mainstream way to expose his story. Again, I think Citizen Four did just fine. But, you know, maybe uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who uh, <laughs> is the heartthrob of many uh, a lady here in the States and abroad, uh, maybe he'll get people to understand the Snowden story. That's a good point because, you know, it's, it's a Hollywood studio film. There are just much more people who are going to go in to see this and come out with a different, maybe a different perception of who Edward Snowden is, you know, maybe, maybe, and let's put our Oliver Stone conspiracy hats on. Maybe this is his way of making a plea to the general public so that if this film is popular enough, and there are enough people who start a hashtag bring Snowden home campaign that there will be some pressure to strike a deal with him or not hold a hard line against him. 
maybe it's a Hail Mary. Yeah, and based on Oliver Stone's history, I think we can expect that this will definitely profile Snowden as a hero. Yes? I think so. Yeah. So I think that- I think I think this is gonna put him as especially just based on the trailer, I think it's gonna put him in the light of someone who made a great personal sacrifice for a greater ideal. And that is kind of how he paints himself. Well, aside from stirring a bunch of paranoia and no one ever wanting to send a personal email ever again, do you think that his whistleblowing and his exposing of all this information about the NSA, do you think it's made a difference? You know, I don't think it really has thus far. Like his, his whole thing, it only really matters if it makes a difference in how we you know, hold our government accountable and how they surveil us. And, you know, the whole bargain between security and freedom. Like, I think these are all things that they talk about in like brief sound bites in the trailer as well. But, you know, when, if you've ever listened to an interview with Snowden, he talks about these things in a very high conceptual meta type way as, you know, he's obviously a really smart guy. And so he's thinking about all these really big ideas, but, you know, he hasn't really, articulated a plan of what all this information, what are we as the public supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to interpret it? He's not really offering a whole lot on that. Well, you know? I, I mean, if I, I've followed this pretty closely and I don't get the sense that he's expecting uh, any particular, um, you know, like sudden action from this mm-hmm. or that person. I think he's made it very clear that, you know, he his goal was just to let the public know what was going on. And if the public wanted to accept it, then that was the public's choice. But I think his point, at least this is what I glean from, you know, his numerous talks, his his point is that as a democracy and as America was constructed, it should be our choice. It, we should be aware of these things. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the difference. And I'm not I don't mean to get political here. But I think that's kind of the difference between uh, a China situation and here, whereas, you know, where uh, China, you know, has now put out these rules where there's, you know, no websites can are allowed to put out original reporting. No Chinese news sites are allowed to put out original reporting without, you know, it being vetted by the government. I mean, that's some pretty hardcore control. And China's now in boom phase. You know, there are a ton of entrepreneurs there, you know, tech startups. Uh, there are a lot of people with money and they're, they're wearing their Apple watches and, you know, and, and, and just things are going very well for a lot of people there. But there's this dual kind of thing happening where there's still very tight levers of control. And if, you know, what I glean from Snowden's whole thing is, you know, if this is kind of what if that's the environment in terms of information and, and lack of privacy, if that's where the U.S. is going, the U.S. public should know. Yeah. Well, I I think he was right to tell us. Um, I remember talking about it with my family after it happened, and I was kind of, I mean, I don't want to say I was Snowden sympathetic, but I was kind of admiring of his personal sacrifice, and I did think he did the right thing. Well, it seems to go back and forth with regard to the legal aspect, because, um, let's see, U.S. District Judge Richard Leon ruled that the NSA's gathering of data, this is right after, this is months after um, Snowden made his uh, revelations uh, via The Guardian. Uh, U.S. Judge Richard Leon ruled that NSA's gathering 
The NSA's gathering of data on telephone calls in the U.S. appeared to violate the Constitution's protection against unreasonable searches. And um, his ruling was then contradicted by another judge. And so this there appears to be this debate back and forth about just what the powers are of the NSA and how far they can reach into our personal lives if we're not under criminal, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen and you're not under a criminal investigation or you're not part of some, you know, watch group, let's say maybe you've immigrated from a particular country that's, you know, on their watch list or whatever. No, you're just, you were born in America, raised here. You're just going about your business, playing Pokemon, you know, <laughs> buying uh, Slurpees or whatever they buy now. Just if you're just a normal American, you know, nothing particular, you're not well-traveled, maybe you haven't lived abroad and you just go about your business. What, you know, how far does the government, is the, is the government allowed to go in its surveillance of you if you've committed no crime, if you're not under any criminal suspicion? And I think that is part of the benefit of what Snowden revealed. Now, as to what some are saying as to him, re- you know, revealing information that might hurt us, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, in terms of our enemies, I haven't really, you know, I haven't seen any proof of that. I'm not saying it's not true. I just haven't seen any proof of that. Frankly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I'm happy that that was disclosed. I don't know if I'll call him a hero, but I do yeah. know that it took a whole lot of courage <laughs> to do that. I mean, imagine if you work, forget U.S. intelligence, just imagine if you work at a major bank and you learn of malfeasance and, you know, you're part of the accounting department and you know that if you whistleblow on this bank, not only will you likely lose your job, you'll probably never get hired by another bank again. The idea that, you know, when you were saying that, you know, we're not necessarily we're we're being treated and surveilled as if we were criminals, even though we haven't committed anything wrong. You know, one of the things in the security sector is the idea of predictive technology so that you can like churn in a couple of factors into an algorithm or something and find people who would be statistically predisposed, even though you haven't necessarily done anything. And then, you know, kind of minority report predict whether or not you're culpable for a crime. So, you know, that kind of is, it's a bit, it's a step removed or something like that, but it's not hard to make that connection from what the NSA was doing in treating everyone like a potential criminal worthy of surveillance. And, you know, another thing um, that Oliver Stone did in the trailer that I think is important that is not really mentioned a lot is that Snowden tried to serve in the military. Oh, Um, there's there's a couple of versions of the trailer and there's like one trailer shows him kind of like in basic training. And that's kind of like an under emphasized part of the story that like this is a guy who really had you know some affection some patriotic uh, affection for the country you know so so i mean maybe you know he fell afoul of the law and maybe you know all of his choices weren't the the best choices but you know it appears that where he's coming from is a place of patriotism you know even though I don't know. Now that he's in Russia, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about, okay, is, has he been co-opted? You know, is he now working for them? 
you know, we'll, I don't think well, we'll ever know on that. Well, yeah. we, we won't. And I'm pretty sure Putin took him in as a big F you to the U.S. But oh, for sure. So, you know, that, that just might. And who knows how long he'll be able to stay there. And to and to wrap up, I just want to point out, you know, um, we're going to we'll include a link to the trailer in our show notes on the uh, website, MarsMagazine.com. To, uh, but I want to point out before we uh, get out of here is that there's one point to call back to Mr. Robot where they show him, uh, let's say involved in coitus, uh, with his loved one. And, um, he looks at his laptop's, uh, embedded webcam and he immediately stops coitus, coitus pauses and he, <laughs> he puts, uh, he puts a cover over his, uh, his webcam. You know, so we have Mr. Robot. Now we have the Snowden uh, trailer with the with the webcam cover. But you know, I, I I think we need to make a Mars webcam cover. I uh, think I think yeah. that's our I think that's our swag. That's our first piece of swag for revenue generation is a Mars magazine webcam cover. I mean, I I'd use it. I still got that Post-it that I stuck over my webcam. You're still we okay. You're still doing it old school. Okay. Yeah. And so that is this week's episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can visit us at MarsMagazine.com or on Twitter at Mars Magazine. I am Adario Strange with Nick Song. And we will see you in the future. <laughs> <laughs>